someone the NSA once listed as the most dangerous hacker in America, sure don't look like much. He travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and to your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyber terrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Good morning. You've tuned in to Cybersecurity Today Radio. I am your host, John Bambanek. We are broadcasting from AM820 News in Tampa and AM1060 News in Orlando. This week, I'm actually uh, broadcasting to you from London uh, here talking about uh, election-related hacking uh, during the UK elections that have been taking place this week. Uh, To connect with us online, visit our website, cybersecuritytodayradio.com you can find us on facebook and twitter at cybersec radio uh, my personal twitter account at bambanek and you can email us at john bambanek radio at gmail.com j-o-h-n-b-a-m-b-e-n-e-k radio at gmail.com always happy to take your questions and see what's on your mind of how to protect yourself and your family what you're seeing out there uh, for scams targeting you your business your children and your family so to kind of start us off, had uh, a pretty packed week uh, this week in terms of cybersecurity news. Uh, we are going to talk about the uh, NSA leak uh, and the contractor uh, about election-related hacking here in the next segment, uh, and certainly some of the cybersecurity issues uh, that the UK is facing in the light of their elections and recent terror attacks. But a couple of other stories of noteworthiness uh, that we wanted to bring up. Recently, this week, uh, the small nation of Qatar, or Qatar, depending on how you want to pronounce it, was isolated. Uh, diplomatic relations were cut off by Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates under the guise that they were supporting Iran and extremist groups or terrorist groups. They've turned around and claimed that the Russian government had planted fake news and engaged in some hacking to make it sound like government officials there in Doha were sympathetic to Iran and uh, to these radicals. As an interesting note, one of our largest uh, military installations in the region is in uh, Qatar. Uh, So certainly uh, there's a very interesting dynamics playing out there, uh, but somewhat skeptical of the claims that the uh, Russians uh, have, have hacked anything. Uh, mostly because it just kind of fits too easy into a narrative. No, I didn't say anything embarrassed, uh, embarrassing uh, and scandalous. Uh, the Russians hacked something and did it. We've seen similar claims uh, of hacking being blamed for uh, inappropriate behavior, uh, certainly with Congressman Weiner, um, you know, the wife or the, excuse me, the husband of Huma Abedin, uh, who is a close confidant Hillary Clinton. The reality of the matter is, right, that, you know, nobody, uh, no nation makes a drastic step of cutting off diplomatic relations simply based on one news article. Uh, There's patterns of behavior and things that lead up to that big step. But certainly, you know, thought it was an interesting claim. Uh, Our government and the United Kingdom are taking those claims seriously, have sent investigators over there uh, to see if they can get an understanding of what's actually going on, uh, if there's a there there, so to speak. Uh, Certainly, uh, you know, the claim fits that Russia is, is looking at more ways to use misinformation and information operations to uh, influence geopolitical realities. Right? Uh, no nation really wants to get into a shooting war with tanks anymore, not against the U.S., but for the low cost of training a dozen people uh, in very basic uh, techniques of social engineering and deception and uh, some online hacking tools. 
Uh, the belief is you can influence the course of geopolitical realities without ever firing a shot. So that's the world we find ourselves in today, uh, and we're certainly going to uh, hear and see more about that uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, while we're on the topic, right, you know, I've been in uh, London all this week. Uh, certainly on the minds of a lot of people here, um, and part of the purpose of my visit was, you know, is there any attempted manipulation of the U.K. elections? We've certainly not seen any indication of that. Uh, so as a, an interesting statement, don't really know what that means yet, uh, but doesn't look like, uh, you know, uh, any nation states have tried to interfere with uh, the current snap elections uh, that uh, Prime Minister May uh, called some months ago. So uh, certainly um, we'll monitor that for developments. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bambanak. Moving to our next story, something I think is more relevant to uh, those of you who have children who are college age or about to be college age. Uh, This week, Harvard University withdrew and rescinded offer letters of incoming students of about 10 students based on inappropriate uh, social media postings. You know, things of a sexist and racist nature, uh, things that I think most people would agree is offensive, but... It was uh, kind of one of the first times somebody has taken that public step of, you know, withdrawing an offer based on social media. And I think that has some implications going forward. I mean, the first is if you don't want the world to see what you're saying on Facebook and on Twitter, lock down your profile. Don't let everybody in the world uh, see what you're posting. You know, the second is, you know, these kids are 18. They're adults now. So... Uh, you know, if they were 14, they probably would have had a strong talking to by a school administrator or whatever about why that was inappropriate, given the learning experience. Uh, but certainly because of the things going on in higher education generally, which we don't need to go into, they're saying, you know what, you're adults. If you're posting stuff like this, we don't want you here. I think the thing to keep in mind, uh, and certainly young people uh, don't seem as a class to have understood this for, you know, I don't know, 10 years since the advent of social media. Anything you say and do online can and will be used against you. I come from a family of lawyers. I've got this inner lawyer voice in my head that's always saying that anything you say and do can and will be used against you. The fact of the matter is, uh, even if things are private, you share uh, a private email with somebody, maybe an intimate photo, you have no idea and no ability to control whether that's forward, whether it's printed or shared. Uh, The same is true for social media. You have no idea if somebody is going to sit there and take a screenshot capture of your private post and send it to somebody. These things are effectively memorialized forever, right? Uh, Even uh, with social media where posts get deleted or whatever, there's services that retain a fair deal of this over, uh, in essence, permanently. So you have young kids making stupid mistakes, and it can come back and bite them in ways that they don't expect. So certainly talking to your kids about social media and privacy, encourage them, right, to, uh, you know, only post things publicly that they don't mind the world seeing. Uh, but, you know, let them know, right, or, or if, the, if you're, you know, you're a teenager listening, right? If something is online, you have no control over who saves that, who shares that, where it goes from there. And these things have a tendency of coming back uh, to haunt you, that they're stored forever. So be mindful of what you're creating online. Be mindful of uh, the persona that you're doing uh, because people can and will make uh, judgments and decisions based on that information. And in this case, it costs uh, 10 students their Harvard admission, right? And it's 
during the summer, so they may have a hard time, uh, you know, transitioning to another higher education institution. So this will have uh, real impacts to their, um, you know, educational development at a time where you want to keep me moving forward. So certainly uh, they got a very tough lesson, uh, but things to keep in mind uh, when using social media. Uh, the last story, right, is, you know, this idea of using games to help do cybersecurity training uh, because programming is boring uh, and some of the command line interfaces are not very uh, sexy. Most of what's portrayed in the popular media about what security professionals do is, is highly sensationalized. We spend most of our time looking at command prompts and text outputs uh, and API calls and doing code. Um, and this idea, hey, we can create games in these pretty interfaces to make it look like it's more the movies. The reality is we are talking about hundreds of thousands of unfilled cybersecurity jobs, good, high-paying jobs. If you have some ability to look at code and understand it, not necessarily developing computer programs, uh, have some understanding of how things work, you know, take the time to learn this in not just in school and in college, but self-teach yourself uh, how technology works, how to secure it. There's lots of great training available online. It's really a great pathway to a very high-paying career. I joke often, uh, you know, I have unlimited job security because I have more work than I could ever do. So certainly, right, you know, if your kids are looking for a professional uh, profession to get into, have some aptitude there, do the hard work of learning programming and some of these in-depth technical things. Coming up next, we're going to bring in Chris Bing, our digital partner from CyberScoop, talking about the NSA leak. So stay tuned for that. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. And now... Focus on government. My idea of a perfect government is one guy who sits in a small room at a desk, and the only thing he's allowed to decide is who to nuke. Government is the problem. Cybersecurity. There's a new virus in the database. What's happening? It's replicating, eating up memory. Uh, what do I do? Type cookie, you idiot. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio. I am your host, John Bambanek. Uh, joining us today on our government feature is Chris Bing from CyberScoop, cyberscoop.com, our digital partner. Uh, had some uh, interesting big news this week uh, about an NSA contractor who leaked classified information about uh, attempts of Russians to attack our election authorities and voting machines. Uh, and a lot of interesting aspects of this story. Uh, I first heard about it getting on a plane on my way to London to talk about election hacking. And by the time I landed, she'd been arrested. And, uh, you know, that's kind of light speed for that kind of stuff. So a lot of different aspects of this story. So uh, wanted to get right into it. So, Chris, why don't you summarize briefly, you know, exactly what happened, what The Intercept uh, picked up and, and what, the, what the government is suggesting was happening during the election? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks, John, for having me. So as we know now, um, to sort of put this in, in, in a brief summary, there was a classified report, uh, it was labeled top secret, which had to do with uh, phishing attempts aimed specifically at at least one voter registration software company. And then from that incident, uh, this is an NSA document, obviously, um, the hackers, a group that's believed to be Russian, also sent phishing emails with information about that vendor to a number of different 
state election officials. These are officials who are in charge of uh, polling places as mm-hmm. well as creation of machines. Right, this right. report to the intercept, and now we understand that uh, the leaker, the individual who gave this to them, is this contractor, a 25-year-old by the name of Reality Winner, who was um, working for a contractor out of Georgia. Um, now, the details about how she was caught, uh, what ultimately led to her swift arrest between the date that she sent these documents, which was the end of last month, and the announcement, which was just two days ago, is, is less clear. But it's important to note that the this NSA report does not mention that voter systems were hacked, that voting machines were hacked. It simply notes that a large-scale phishing operation occurred aimed at software vendors and election officials, but the results of that phishing operation are not clear at this time. Right, and I think you know that kind of brings up an interesting point in a, in a theory I had looking at, at the data about that. The timing of those attacks was pretty late in the election cycle. So, I mean, what are you going to do with voter registration, you know, a week out from That's an election, right? right? Uh, that it shows to me that they're learning, right? And they're actively trying to get more information for next time. Because, you know, when you're talking about voter registration, some of these services in the lead up to an election, I mean, not only is there a time constraint in terms of, of when uh, making actual attacks is, is useful, but election officials are less likely to open up data and and uh, be subject to phishing attacks if it's not kind of an appropriate time period. So, I mean, they could launch those kind of attacks now, but election officials, who are usually county clerks, though not exclusively, you know, have a lot of other responsibilities. And there's no elections going on right now except, um, you know, some special elections here or there. So. Uh, the thing that I've been telling people is, you know, uh, one, it's captured the imagination of a lot of people uh, and not just Russia. Uh, but, you know, there is a lot of on the job training going on of trying to get better uh, at some of this stuff. Right. And I think you bring up a good point, which is a big reason for why this story played out so heavily in the media was because of what it could mean, not what it said. Right. Um, and that's important. We really just don't know at this point based on the evidence that's available, how damaging or to what degree of access the hackers had against these different U.S. election officials. Uh, to, to me, the scary thing is it says that they're, they're coming back. You know, they're, they're going to want to play in 2018. They're going to want to play in 2020. Um, and I don't know your opinion, right? Our response strategy of, the, of how to deal with this is there's no good option. You know, how do you tell Russia to, to stop doing this? I mean, you can't really retaliate in kind. You know, if there's somebody in the intelligence community who can manipulate Russia's election so Vladimir Putin loses, give that guy all the money, right? Give him a huge raise. Give him an office staff, right? You know, all the money needs to go to that guy and just let him do whatever he wants. I think that's right. I mean, the asymmetric threat that, that the U.S. faces from Russia right now is, is truly – a new thing. And, and what you're mentioning when you say that they're going to come back in 2018, 2020, uh, James Comey, obviously, before he left the FBI, made that comment in an open hearing. And then later, I believe, just a few weeks later, uh, Admiral Mike Rogers, the NSA director, made the same comment that um, Russian hackers will, in fact, try to disrupt U.S. elections in 2018 and in 2020. So given those two comments and, and the similar language, I think it's fair to say 
that the intelligence community probably has some insight into continued efforts by some of these Russian hackers to mm. influence uh, a future processes. So it's something to keep an eye on, and there's really not a clear strategy that I've seen from the states, from the governor's associations, mm. in terms of what's, what's going to be done here just over the next year as we get ready for the 2018 election. No, no, that's definitely uh, definitely the case. So I wanted to go back into, you know, some of the interesting uh, details. I mean, you know, first, right, alleged leaker, you know, reality winner. You know, she's under indictment but hasn't been convicted uh, and entitled to due process and all of that. But how The Intercept handled this information uh, and some of the computer clues, I think, that, that could have been used to identify her, I think, are interesting. What can you tell us about that? There has been a, a decent bit of reporting over the last two days, really, looking at a technique that different intelligence agencies use uh, of watermarking documents. So when a, when a document mm -hmm. is watermarked, it essentially has a hidden sign on it, which will identify it uh, when it's being printed out or when it's being shared in terms of where it's coming from. Documents can be watermarked to show how they're being shared, who's mm -hmm. sharing them. It's a way of keeping tabs on the documents. One of the techniques that that may have been used in this so there's not sufficient evidence is that the document that reality winner shared with the intercept which we know was printed out had a watermark and mm -hmm. that's how the NSA knew that she shared it right right no and I, th I, I certainly think yeah some of that's interesting I know people found the serial number of the printer uh, there was a unique yep. fold but I mean the surprising thing to me is that you're able to print this stuff in the first place, right? I mean, uh, the intelligence community doesn't like having uncontrolled documents running around, which is what a printout is. You can fold it in your pocket and take it out of the building. Uh, so there's strong logs of that. So it was a very kind of dumb mistake on her part, or allegedly dumb mistake on her part. Uh, but certainly, you know, the Guardian did itself no favors. I mean, they printed the document online as it was, and we were able to look at the watermarks and tell you what printer ID it was uh, in model. I think it's also important to note that this is not the only case in recent history where an individual with a top-level clearance has walked out of a building with sensitive documents. Yeah, um, I, yeah. So we're coming at the end of our segment. Uh, thank you for being with us, Chris Bing, uh, Cyberscoop.com, our digital partner. Stay tuned. We will be right back after this brief break. You are listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bambanek. Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bambanek will be right back. You're back with Bambanek on cybersecurity. And welcome back. You've tuned in to Cybersecurity Today Radio. I am your host, John Bambanek, bringing you cybersecurity news 
of how to protect yourself and your privacy online. Uh, recently, uh, a security vendor, McAfee, makes a popular antivirus uh, software, uh, commissioned a study um, that found uh, users uh, in their case, on vacation, but generally, you know, when presented a choice between convenience and security, users choose convenience. And I believe I made reference to this last week. I know I talk about it a lot when I talk about privacy online. A lot of these free services that we rely on—Facebook, Twitter, uh, Gmail, uh, YouTube, Instagram, so on and so forth—all of these services can exist because they monetize your information, right? Usually in the form of giving uh, advertisers targeted access to you uh, based on your profile and your preferences. This has real market value uh, for these companies, right? You know, what uh, kind of music you're interested in, what kind of food preferences, age, whether you have kids, so on and so forth. And advertisers pay good money to have access to you to advertise products that you're more likely to buy. I know last week we talked about Google having access to uh, your offline purchases uh, simply to make this work. Uh, the caveat of this, uh, the reality of all of these services, they're designed to be free. They're designed to be super convenient. You just use this. Often there are privacy settings and things you can do to protect yourself to lock down your social media profiles like we talked about in the last segment uh, for college admissions. Um, probably better you don't tweet racist stuff online in the first place, but uh, there's no reason to necessarily broadcast everything in the world. All of these services have to give you privacy settings to allow you to control your information, especially for these large companies that do business uh, in many parts of the world that actually have strong privacy regulations. So they put these uh, features in to protect your privacy. They just don't make them terribly convenient to use. Uh, same is true for security, is that, uh, you know, uh, we tell everybody you should have a unique, strong password, 12 to 16 characters of, of random-looking letters for every website that you go to. Now, you know, sitting at home listening to this, raise your hand if you've got a unique password for every website you go to. And I know on the other side of the Atlantic, not a single honest person is raising their hands right now because nobody does that. Nobody can do that. Um, I know I've got uh, login accounts to hundreds, if not thousands, of different things. There's no way I could remember that many passwords. Right. Uh, but it's all, you know, the advice we give is not convenient. And that's uh, obviously not very helpful for people to protect your security. So uh, certainly for things of, uh, of security, right, using uh, a password manager so that you can have strong passwords for everything uh, managed centrally across your devices so that uh, you can uh, mitigate the harm of password theft. The study that McAfee talked about was, you know, when people are traveling and on vacation, they're using open wireless networks. This is something I don't believe we've talked about on this show. Uh, wireless networking, by definition, right, is sending radio frequency emissions in the air. If you're within range and there's ways to extend that for miles, everybody can see your traffic unless there's some encryption. Every hotel you go to, including the hotel that I am staying at right now, uh, is got an open wireless network. They have this little web portal you enter a password in. 
but there is no encryption, which means everybody in this hotel network can see my network traffic. They can see whatever I'm admitting in the clear, uh, which, you know, should concern a lot of people, right? You know, they can see what websites I'm visiting, assuming uh, that you're not using the secure encrypted versions of that. They may see usernames and passwords. Um, my company, for instance, Fidela Cybersecurity, we sponsor an event, uh, Wall of Sheep, or have in the past few years, where all this does is at a security conference, people who know better monitors the network traffic and shows all the usernames and passwords that have been captured in the clear on a network we know to be hostile, right? So even you know professionals, right, are choosing convenience over security, convenience over privacy. And that's kind of the exchange that we've uh, you know adopted a society, but it's also a dynamic that these companies understand exists when it comes to privacy. They make it very easy for you to share information, talk to your friends, network, whatever. They make it more difficult to protect your privacy. So that really means you need to be aware uh, and train yourself and learn how to change your Facebook privacy settings, how to change the privacy settings in Windows 10 and on Twitter uh, to uh, take a little bit of inconvenience and learn these things because nobody, absolutely nobody, is going to protect your personal privacy except you. That's it. So if you don't take the time to learn this stuff, companies that data mine you know that you 99 times out of 100 you're going to take convenience and free over privacy and they monetize that the same is true for security uh you know doing the secure thing is difficult right you know you're in an airport you're at a hotel a library a starbucks wherever where there's open wireless you want to get on you want to check your emails but the reality is is you know there that comes with security risks couple of things to think about right if you have a smartphone that you can use a personal hotspot with you know it, take a look at that right you can keep it with you and use part of your data plan um, certainly take a look at using VPNs uh, outside of that if you connect to an open wireless network and then use a good VPN solution uh, that I know we've talked about VPNs virtual private networks in the past right which creates an encrypted tunnel uh, you know to another spot on the internet to provide you a measure of protection uh, and you can uh, there's a wide variety of uh, VPNs out there uh, freedom from F secure hide my ass uh, private internet access. Uh, there's uh, lists of stuff out there. Uh, I will tweet out links, uh, you, know, of, you know, in the coming week of where you can compare lists of all of these VPNs who will best protect your privacy. That way, if you are stuck uh, traveling, and I travel a lot of using open wireless networks, so you can give yourself a good measure of protection. So it's very important uh, to keep that in mind so that uh, you know, you can protect your security, you can protect your privacy against criminals who will use that. And I want to go back to the hotel example just one last time to drive this point home. Uh, nation state adversaries, you know, and, and criminal entities are known to go to hotels and airports and things of that sort. Just sit there all day, capture all of the wireless internet traffic, and see what information they can capture about users and what they're doing, who they're talking to, emails, so on and so forth, uh, so that they can use that information for ill. I mean, if you send your credit card information, your social security number, 
unencrypted across the internet on an open wireless network, everybody's got access for that. They don't need to develop malware or computer viruses or have sophisticated attacks. You've basically just broadcasted it over the air, available for everybody to see. So certainly, like I said, keep in mind, know that the convenient choice is often the insecure choice. The convenient choice is the choice that will undermine your privacy. And keep that in mind as you make decisions going across your day, uh, just trying to get your work done and live your life. So we're going to take a short break here. Uh, Coming up next after this, we're going to have Andre Walker from the New York Observer talk about uh, some cybersecurity issues facing the United Kingdom here in the wake of recent terrorist attacks and the elections. So certainly stay tuned for that. If you have any questions, again, on privacy and security, find us on our website, cybersecuritytodayradio.com. But stay tuned. We've got more great content coming up next. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bamadek, and we will be right back after this short break. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. back with the latest on cybersecurity. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. This week, we are broadcasting out of London. I'm here on business uh, uh, talking about election hacking uh, at a conference. Uh, But that does bring us to some uh, big events happening here in the UK. Uh, There's a snap election that has happened this week. So time will tell uh, the fallout that's going on from that. But the current prime minister of the UK uh, wants to take a stronger stand on cybersecurity, follow Europe's lead. so joining us uh, to talk about that is Andre Walker from the New York Observer. He is a correspondent here in London. Uh, thank you for joining us today. No problem. Great to be on the show. Thank you. So let's break it down. Uh, you know, exactly what is Prime Minister Theresa May uh, uh, wanting to do? What does she mean by follow Europe's lead on uh, cybersecurity? Well, I think, I think there's, a, there's a big problem here. And it's essentially that for many years, the British security services have wanted to get access to apps like WhatsApp. And you know that there's been a big argument between you know, these big American companies mm-hmm. on encrypted communications methods and uh, governments that want access to them. Now, essentially, um, this election, one of the things that's dominating it in the, past, in the last days of it is the, uh, the, the terrorist attacks that have taken place. Um, specifically the Ariana Grande bomb attack in mm-hmm. uh, the Manchester Arena and, of course, the knife attack around Borough Market. Now, I think there's one, one thing that we need to be really clear on here, that if you look at the attack on Borough Market as an obvious example, one of the guys who did it was on a TV show for Channel 4 called The Jihadi Next Door. Now, mm-hmm. you know, he was nonetheless not being actively monitored. So he was on a watch list, of course, but he wasn't being actively monitored. And you just wonder whether... The issue here 
is that there isn't enough resources for the security services or is the issue that actually we need to be able to hack into people's communications. Yeah, and that's kind of the, the perspective I take, right? Obviously, being a visitor here, you know, I don't have great in-depth local understanding i don't necessarily have skin in the game but you know i i want i uh, i believe there was reporting that one of these people was arrested a couple years ago let go there was all the telltale signs of you know at least some of these people you should have had your eye on anyway so if you weren't able to use your existing resources and keep an eye on them what is going to make you think that you know creating backdoors in the facebook encrypted chats is going to make it any better well, I think what I might do now is kind of give you the British government's argument, mm-hmm. what the real argument that they're making. The real argument is this. Look, last year, 50,000 British people downloaded the ISIS magazine. Now, that is a huge number. There are 23,000 people on the sort of jihadist watch list. Now, I think the argument is that it, co- it takes potentially dozens of people to actively follow one suspect. So obviously what always happens in all these cases, and the reason why this terrorist is always known to the police and the security services, quote unquote, is because um, essentially what they've tried to do is they've tried to work out which people are of the Islamists, which people are genuinely likely to commit an attack, and which people are just dreaming of the day of doing it. And I think what the government is saying is, given that we could not possibly follow all 24,000 of them, we need tougher, we need more methods to monitor them. Now, of course, my argument is, as somebody who's on the right, is firstly, we've got to be very, very concerned about the number of people we're letting into the country. We've got to be very concerned about the background. And I know that's something that transcends from Britain and America. Mm. And certainly I know the White House is very concerned about this issue. But equally, we need to start asking ourselves the following question. You know, why is it that somebody can come uh, as a refugee because they're a wanted terrorist in their own country, then four years later get British citizenship? No, no, I think you you certainly make a good point there, right? You know, is, uh, you know, vetting some people, there's obvious concerns coming in and be surprised, uh, you know, when these kind of events happen. Um, And certainly, you know, there's, uh, you know, a lot of politics back and forth, uh, you know, in several countries uh, revolve around this. Well, I thought thought one of the things that that was kind of quite shocking. I mean, I agreed with Ariana Grande in terms of having that concert in Manchester, because fundamentally the reason for blowing up her concert was because the Islamic State feels that it's, concerts with young girls at is immoral so if they were Mm. offended by 20,000 concerts they're going to be more offended by 50,000 of course the proceeds of it went to the British Red Cross and what are the British Red Cross doing? Well essentially these people (laughs) traffickers in North Africa sail five miles off the coast and then you know the, the you know navies of European countries pick up the people and sail them the rest of the way, and the, uh, helped by the British Red Cross. So of course the irony is that if you bought a ticket to that concert, you were helping to finance the uh, the uh, more more of these refugees, of who many of whom have very very unpleasant views. And, and I just think that, that 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 is the fundamental problem. Now, in terms of people like WhatsApp, Facebook, and others, I mean I think they are right to kind of stand up to European governments because. You know, there is not a great tradition in Europe of free speech and and freedom and democracy. Mm -hmm. There might be in the English-speaking world, but that's not the same thing. We often call them Western values. Well, not really Western values at all, are they? They're the values of the English-speaking world. And Mm -hmm. so so I think think from our point of view in Britain, we need to be following America's lead much more in terms of trying to clamp down on the problem of bringing people to the country, but also remember those values of free speech and free association that have made us the countries that we are today. No, I I certainly think that's true, and I think one of the downsides of talking about 
about, you know, hey, we're going to go after these applications is, you know, one, you're letting ISIS and friends know what you're going after and you're interested in. They could create applications. They could, you know, find all sorts of offline, unsurveillable un, uh, stuff. If you know their face, uh, you know, on Facebook and they're coordinating and I could see who they're talking to and create, you know, a heat map and basically map their entire yeah. social network. As as an intelligent professional, I would never shut down, you know, an area where the adversary communicates. I'd monitor the heck out of it. And if I've got to deal with nuances of encryption, I still get a whole lot of data besides that, uh, even with that problem. Well, yeah, and, and I think one of, the, one of the huge advantages that we've got, um, obviously, we, we are in the UK, we're an island, as, as you know, and that gives us the ability to kind of monitor coming, people coming in and out, which, which okay, you know, we don't do perfectly, but we do reasonably well. I think the other thing is that a lot of these extremists, the reason why they're on the watch list to start with is because, you know, again, you might get training in counter surveillance when you go to somewhere like Syria, but of course, you've already had to plan to go. And the, the, the nature of that means you have to have logged on to extremist websites for years and years and years, potentially starting as a fairly young teenager. Mm. So that's kind of how the list is, the, the, uh, the watch list is kind of created. And therefore, they, you know, they know who these people are. But it, it's not the issue of, you know, knowing who is an extremist and who is not an extremist. That is done. It's the issue of working out who is potentially dangerous and who is not potentially dangerous. And as I've said, I would suggest that nowadays... You know, you don't need a bomb to have a terrorist attack. You don't need a gun for a terrorist attack. All you need is a kitchen knife or a car. Therefore, there is no barrier to entry, if you like, for being a terrorist. So, so I think then what you've got to do is you've got to look at de-radicalization and you've got to look at not allowing radicals into the country. You know, the, the, the tech side, I think, is, is in many respects irrelevant. I think it's just it, what this is all about, really, as far as I can see, this is a way of justifying the continuation of this kind of liberal proposal to, to this liberal addiction to, um, to immigration from problem countries. And, you know, if you look at the photos of people coming to Europe, if they are so frightened of living in their own country, why is it only military-aged men that seem to turn up? Why do they leave their wives and children? So, of course, the reason they're coming to the country is for a better life, and, and I accept that the vast majority of them are not violent terrorists, but because there is a percentage that are we need to err on the cautious side. And I think, I think far too often in America, you are dead wrong when you look at this White House, because, because I think this White House uh, that you've got is, is genuinely committed to taking steps to deal with that. Now, are those steps perfect? Is, is it being challenged in the court? Well, you know, they're not perfect. And yes, it is being challenged in the court. But I think this is the first White House that I can think of that has taken this issue seriously. And I think that what the Europeans are doing by, atta by attacking things like Facebook and WhatsApp is they are they are focusing on issues that is almost entirely irrelevant. No, I think you definitely make a point, right? It's focusing on all, all the wrong things. Coming to the end of our segment, so I uh, have to let you go. A lot of great information there. Uh, you've been listening to Andre Walker, New York Observer, uh, who's London, uh, their London correspondent. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you again, Andre Walker, New York Observer. Uh, a lot of great content, uh, you know, that we've covered with our show with CyberScoop, uh, the NSA leaks, uh, the cybersecurity implications, the terrorist attacks in London. So a lot of information, hopefully, that you can use, protect yourself, your family uh, from online threats, be aware of what's going on in the world. If you want to connect with us, feel free to go to our website, cybersecuritytodayradio.com, or find us on Twitter at Facebook at CyberSecRadio.com. 
brings us to the end of our show. Hope to catch you next week talking about cybersecurity issues, what you need to know, how to protect yourself and your family from online threats. You are listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with John Bambanak. Enjoy the rest of your weekend.